0: We're talking quarterbacks on the QB Sco Show, your number one spot for breaking down the number one position in the league. Brought to you, of course, by the fine folk at Bleeding Green Nation and SB Nation. I am your host, Michael Kist. Follow me on Twitter at Michael Kist NFL. And here with me, as always, to break down quarterback play with the Eagles and around the world is QB1 in my heart. He is Mark Schofield. Find him on Twitter at Mark Schofield. Mark, as we can determine from recent news for guys like Clayton Thorson, Life comes at you fast in the NFL. How you doing, brother?
1: Life does indeed come at you fast, my friend. And it's great to be here. It's great to be back. Week one of the NFL season is finally here. We made it through a long and arduous offseason and felt like every day was just inching forward closer to our inevitable doom. So it is only probably right and proper that today's historical reference comes to us from Into the Breach. Hugh Sabag Montefiore's fantastic work cannot recommend this enough about the Battle of the Somme, which was fought between July and November of 1916 on both sides of the upper reaches of the River Somme in France. Mm -hmm. And the result, as the gentle listeners may or may not know, is it's termed this way on Wikipedia minor Allied territorial gain, which is (laughs) amazing given the fact that, again, it was from July to November. You had Hundreds of thousands of men just throw themselves over the trenches and just get it mowed down. I mean, the numbers on casualties, you had 465,000 English, 200,000 French, and for the German army, between anywhere from 434,000 to 500,000 people. It's just an incredible couple of months of, of fighting, and again- Sabag Monteflori's work is just – it's seminal in, in this field. But I do want to read mm-hmm. one passage, maybe two, probably just one, because it began with an explosion over the period of months leading up to what everybody assumed was going to be this big Allied offensive. The Allied – engineers were tunneling under the German line and they let off a series of explosions after, you know, using artillery fire to sort of try to lessen and weaken. Yeah, soften them up with a bunch of Soften them up and then just (laughs) blow them up from underneath. So here's this quote. Near the crater, the British soldiers encountered no resistance. This was because the ninth Company's 3rd Platoon had been trapped in a big dugout where three of the four exits had been buried. The sentry was trying to break out of the fourth exit, which had been reduced to a very small hole when the first British soldiers reached the German position. Before he could get out, he was killed with a, th- a thrust from a British bayonet and his fallen corpse knocked down the men who were standing on the dugout stairs behind him. A German officer retaliated by shooting the sentry's assail- assailant in the face with a flare, a response which prompted the attackers to lob hand grenades and smoke bombs into the dugout. But the trapped German refused to surrender, banking on their regiment to send up reinforcements to rescue them. Picture that over weeks. <laughs> that's just horrific. Yeah. And that's basically what World War One really was, was just, you're horrific. But if that interests you in some strange way, I cannot recommend this book enough.
0: There's uh, from Legion, which is a, a Canadian military history magazine. They, ha- they have a great article on that. Face to face, was the Battle of Somme worth it? Which tells right. you how much was gained Yeah. I mean it's like
1: the modern definition of a Peric victory. Yeah because again exactly. you're talking about casualties on the Allied side of in excess of six hundred thousand men for a minor territorial advance.
0: And listen was the battle of Clayton Thorson and Cody Kessler <laughs> worth it? I mean, that's... that's
1: a, was that even a minor territorial advance?
0: I, yeah, no. Well, both just got blown off the battlefield because it is the end of a very short era for Clayton Thorson. What a perfect transition there. And we don't have to, uh, we don't have to talk about this much because we've documented his struggles plenty, but it's a new development for the Eagles. Nonetheless, since we've last spoken about the quarterback, Roman Philadelphia, Mark, the pick for Thorson was objectively bad, Based on our evaluations and I'll throw in Solak in there with us as well since he was on the same train. Uh, I'll Also make it clear that I'm not trying to make it sound like we're smarter than Howie and company as these fifth round picks rarely pan out anyway. Just try to do a redraft on any year and you'll see what I mean. And I've always been team draft a quarterback every year or every other year Uh, only you know of course when it doesn't work out then I'm against it but uh, I, I really think the criticism for the pick has been a bit much and I'm probably guilty of that as well but the Eagles are quick to cut bait and move on and the same goes for Cody Kessler as well I do wonder what life would be like without signing Josh McCown to make it a legitimate three-player quarterback room. But at the same time, I at least applaud the Eagles for recognizing their mistake quickly. I mean, every time I heard Doug Peterson and Mike Groh talk about Thorson, yeah, they were trying to talk him up, but you could just kind of like see it in their eyes that they were really not about the Thorson life. And, you know, again, I applaud them for not falling victim to the sunk cost fallacy. So I guess the question is, Mark, and I think I know the answer to this already, was this a surprise to you? At all with how all of this went down with Thorson and Kessler for the Eagles.
1: I don't think it was a surprise. And if you think back to our pre-draft shows and our post-draft shows, you know, you and I both sort of made the case that as far as that sort of day three quarterback for the Eagles, that might fit. There was a guy with a sweet mustache from the Pacific Northwest. Minshew. There you go. Gardner Minshew. That would have been a nice schematic fit because you know the offense that he was running. You know that there are sort of air raid, West Coast type concepts and elements to what the Eagles do on offense. We talked about it somewhere with Josh McCown, of course. And so He was available on the board at 167 when they drafted Thorson. But I do think you're right in a sense, and it's sort of another way to track the two teams that I cover most, the Eagles in a sense, and the Patriots because smart organizations cut their losses rather than chasing the ghost. Uh And you look at, for example, just this past week, Bill Belichick drafts a cornerback in the second round, and it's his second year, Duke Dawson, and he cuts him. He gets rid of him because it's not working out. So why continue to spend time, money, resources, ban your head against the wall, however you want to phrase it, just move on. And I think that's what the Eagles did here. I think the acquisition of McCown played a huge role in this because we saw what he could do. Yes, it was against twos and threes in a sense, but he looks like he could step in and run this offense. He's calling audibles and checks at his very first drive. Like, we get it. You know what you're doing here. So, yeah. you know, you sort of raised, Mike, the hypothetical of in Josh McCown less world. What does the quarterback room like? You might be looking at Brian Hoyer. You know, Because mm. he was apparently a sought-after commodity when the Patriots decided to roll with Jared Stidham behind Tom Brady. So that might have been the situation that we were looking at, maybe Brian Hoyer coming over, because he signed a three-year, $12 million deal. That's not bad for a guy that was recently cut. So
0: And it, it kind of fits the mold of what the Eagles were looking for in the backup yeah. position as they were going for McCown. That same type of journeyman can come in, learn the system right away, and figure it out. Because we, the, the question we had was, who can learn the system? in August and figure it out in time to be ready for the time that the Eagles might need him, you know?
1: Yeah, and you're going to need somebody that's probably been around a while that knows the ins and outs of an NFL locker room, of an NFL playbook, and doesn't need their hand held, you mm. know, from the front door to the film room like I just held the hands of my kids on the first day of school. But, you know, hey. that's Papa Schofield working through some emotions here <laughs> as he suddenly has two kids in school and I got a young kindergartner now. And it's a tough day. It's Casa Day Schofield. Not as tough as Mitch, but it's a tough Tough day at Carson's de
0: Absolutely. So the new reality for the Eagles is life without Clayton Thorson and Cody Kessler and Mark with two kids in school. Life comes at you fast, Mark. It smacks you in the face. For, for I'm the a man, Eagles, I'm 42. it's forty-two. You are a man. Uh, look, this is obviously catastrophic for the Eagles, but uh, as I said, <laughs> they, they they have a legitimate three-player quarterback room with Carson Wentz, his new uncle Josh McCown. And Nate Sudfeld, who is still recovering from wrist surgery, but should be available very soon if just in case a nuke hits Philadelphia in an attempt to squash Hurricane Dorian. But the the fourth enters the fray via waivers that is Kyle Laletta, the former Richmond spider and senior bowl darling the apple of our eye down in Mobile Alabama a couple years ago he'll land on the Eagles practice squad the former fourth round pick of the New York Giants finds himself as the odd man out in New York as they decide to hold on to the disintegrating Eli Manning preseason hall of famer Daniel Jones also first round pick and YouTube trick shot sensation Alex Tanney Mark, this is uh, from the Ringer article on Loletta by Danny Heifetz. Excuse me if I didn't pronounce that correctly, but this is from before the draft. Heifetz says, quote, Loletta has none of the physical traits that let previous FCS prospects stand out like Westworld 3D printed quarterback build of Carson Wentz or the huge arm of Joe Flacco. In fact, nothing about Loletta's measurements scream NFL quarterback, unquote. So let's go to another source. Perhaps you're more familiar with uh, Dane Brugler of The Athletic. Every year he puts out his draft guide aptly named The Beast because it's extremely comprehensive. Here's what he had to say about Loletta back in 2018. Quote, he won't wow with his physical tools, but his tape shows inefficient passer who is quick to scan and understands timing and placement. Overall, Lauletta has only average size and arm strength, but he is accurate, tough, and intelligent with the mature makeup to handle quarterback responsibilities in the NFL. His on-field play is reminiscent of Trevor Simeon, unquote. Do these line up with your opinions of Lauletta then and even now?
1: Yeah, I I think they're pretty much in line with how I viewed him. I I think – Lawletta is kind of Cody Kessler plus in a sense. He's Uh somebody that's going to have to win with his mind. You know, one of the big knocks on him coming out was the lack of arm strength. And, you know, that draft class was again a draft class where people were thinking Patriots might go all in on a quarterback. There were talk, there were rumors that they might trade up to get a Josh Rosen or even a Baker Mayfield. And so a lot of Patriots fans really sort of fell in love with Uh Lawletta. But at the same time, they recognized that there were some physical limitations to his game. But where he wins to sort of use that phrase is pre-snap and post-snap with his mind. He's very good at sort of making anticipation throws. He's very active in the pre-snap phases of the play, calling out adjustments, calling out protections, calling out the mic, sometimes using hand signals. I remember one play against James Madison. I think he used sort of a chug-type motion to signal something to his receiver to adjust the route pre-snap. So that's what he does best. It's interesting seeing how it unfolded in New York because, you know, they, they draft him in the fourth round last year when people thought that they needed to draft a quarterback and instead they draft Saquon Barkley. And there were some sort of expectations that maybe he was going to be ready, but it never quite came together for him. Alex Tandy looked good last preseason. Then obviously he won that third spot this preseason, although I know some Giants fans and some Giants reporters are a little bit upset. They think it's a wasted roster spot, keeping Tanny But at the same time, look, He's not going to wow you, Loretta, with his physical skills. But what he does is with his mind. And when you think about the offense that the Philadelphia Eagles run, yes, there are some shots downfield that obviously Sudfeld, McCown, and obviously Carson Wentz will be able to execute. But the bulk of their offense is run in that short, intermediate area of the field. And that's stuff that Kyle Loletta can run. At the same time, you want a smart guy to be able to be your your scout team quarterback. Yeah. Somebody that can sort of step into the shoes of Dak Prescott one week and I guess Eli Manning or Daniel Jones another week or this week, Case Keenum. And no. he's going to look a lot like Case Keenum, I think. And so in that sense, this is a smart move because you could still maybe develop him for down the road. You know, that didn't work out with Clayton Thorson. So now maybe you try to do that with Kyle Lala
0: so PFF went through some surprise cuts, at least what they found to be surprise cuts. Mike Renner wrote this up for Pro Football Focus. He said about Laletta, quote, this might be one of the most head-scratching, not only because Laletta was a high fourth-rounder last year, but also because he dominated this preseason. He earned a 79.9 overall grade, had a passer rating of 103.8, unquote. So, Loletto had four touchdowns, zero interceptions, nearly a 60% completion percentage. Did you see any of his preseason action, and did you see anything that maybe you wanted to see from him from a year-to-year development standpoint, or has he been pretty much holding steady since he got in the league?
1: I would put it more in the hold and steady category. I think you have to put his preseason in sort of the the vacuum of context, in a sense, Mm -hmm. and I just butchered that, but... (laughs) He was going against threes and fours. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not like he was getting the start. It's not like he was going against ones and twos. Remember, because you know you had Eli getting playing time in most, if not I think all of their preseason games, except for the fourth, he didn't suit up mm-hmm. uh, for the game against New England. But you know, in that game, you had Daniel Jones getting a lot of run. He was splitting some time with Tanny, and so he was competing against guys that were now hoping that the XFL invite comes in the mailbox and so yes he looked good but all of the Giants quarterbacks looked good even Eli Manning his like limited action looked better than we expected and so yeah he looked okay but all the Giants quarterbacks looked okay this preseason and he was doing it against threes and fours so I while it's a head scratcher in the sense that they did use a high fourth on him it's just his second year. You're keeping Alex Tanney over him. Maybe that makes you question it a bit. Mm. When you put it in context, I think you can sort of understand what the Giants were doing. They couldn't cut Eli Manning. Nobody's going to take him in a trade. You're not going to move on from Daniel Jones right away. Guy looks like a Hall of Famer apparently. <laughs> so it was Hammer Tanny and they decided to roll with Tanney because Teddy's a bit more of a veteran and similar to the discussion with Josh McCown, somebody that can help both Daniel Jones and I guess Eli Manning figure it out.
0: Looking at your pre-draft rankings, I know I would have had Loletta, who I was, I was kind of high on. I would have had Loletta higher than Clayton Thorson. Would you have been the same if they were in the same class? Would you take Loletta first?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't. <laughs> no, I don't again, the whole Clayton Thorson thing—it never made sense to some of us on the outside looking in. But this That's is right. one of those moments of that divide between us. And those on the inside, because we yeah. remember Jim Nagy, scouting director for the senior bowl, said, look, NFL teams were telling us he was a you know third rounder. Yeah. So there were people in the league that liked him. Those of us on the outside didn't. Those of us on the outside didn't like Daniel Jones, and they're fitting him for his gold jacket now. So what do we know? Exactly. What do we know? What does anyone know? Nothing. What looked- at
0: Arby's. <laughs> so before we go to break I do want to drop some quick news on the Cowboys and then we're going to get to some sweet sweet Case Keenum talk but the Cowboys have some news today they've got a deal done it is not Zeke but Lyle Collins the the tackle there has been assigned to a five-year extension based on one of the top five paid right tackles in the league for now anyway before the new contracts start to drop next year but that deal is done and the interesting thing Per Adam Schefter is the five-year extension actually creates $5.7 million in cap space for the Cowboys this season per source. And Adam Schefter wonders out loud where that cap space might go. And of course, we are still waiting on a Zeke deal. And what I heard earlier today from 105 through the fan, which Jerry Jones was on there in the DFW era was it's Tuesday. We're prepping like it's Tuesday. Basically, I'm paraphrasing here, but we can only prep with the guys that are here. So it doesn't sound like they're closer. They started to get close on a deal on Sunday. And then apparently talks kind of broke down because the Cowboys said that Zeke was being uncompromising. Uh, Of course, these are all my takeaways, nothing verbatim from any other reporter. So if I'm inaccurate, please put that on me. So that's the situation in Dallas, right now. We'll keep you updated on that throughout the week as this story develops. When we come back, we're going to talk some sweet, sweet case Keenum. That's up next here on the QB SCO show. And we are back on the QB SCO show episode 31, brought to you by SB Nation and Bleeding Green Nation. Michael Kist here with Mark Schofield. And finally, we are back to the portion of the show. For which this entire show was really created, and no, it was not for historical references, despite the overwhelming evidence in favor of that, the reason we created this show initially was I wanted an outside of Philly opinion from somebody I trusted to preview the upcoming enemy quarterbacks that would be playing the Philadelphia Eagles that week. So we resume with our regularly scheduled programming after a long break and lots of nonsense to present to you, gentle listener, the illustrious Case Keenum. And Mark, I think it's safe to say that we know what Case Keenum is at this point in his career we have seven years of evidence with five different teams. Guy is a journeyman's journeyman. His best year, of course, coming in 2017 with the Vikings, which led to big-time disappointment for them in the NFC Championship game, where he threw two costly interceptions in a 38-7 to route. You may remember that game. He spent last year with the Broncos as they searched for answers there. Uh, after that outlier of a 2017 campaign, Keenum basically regressed to his mean, as he was very inconsistent. PFF's QB annual had him below league average in a number of analytical categories uh, for grade from a clean pocket, under pressure, positive grade rate, third down grade rate, and so on and so forth. It goes on. Mark, what's your overall take on Keenum as an NFL quarterback in the year of our Lord 2019?
1: I think you put it perfectly, Mike. He's a journeyman's journeyman. <laughs> yeah. That sound you hear, by the way, is every gentle listener just dropping this show right now. Because they're like, look, we waited all this time to get back to the sweet, sweet, sweet content and it's Case Keenum.
0: Yeah. Oi. We're all deal. Buckle
1: up, kids. Yeah, it's a (laughs) a tough break for the gentle listeners. But look, Case Keenum is a caretaker. We know this. He is going to keep that seat warm until Jay Gruden and company decide it's time to play Dwayne Haskins. Or Daniel Snyder comes down from on high and says it's time to play Dwayne Haskins. Mm. You know, that 2017 season was a big outlier. You know, his adjusted net yards per attempt is the only time in his entire career yeah. that he got over 7. Yep. I mean, most of the time, you're talking for his career, his average is 5.8 per attempt. And exactly. he was 7.03. I mean, this was a huge outlier. You know, 11-3 and three as a starter. You know, for his career, he's 26-28. and 28. What was he, 7th? in adjusted net
0: yards per attempt only behind like, like it was Carson Wentz at sixth and he was seventh that year like that was a yeah. that was a crazy year for him
1: a lot of what they did and I know we're going to sort of get into how Pat Schumer schemed him up but a lot of it was off of play action vertical shots off of play action because he doesn't have an overpowering arm and they took advantage of shots plays and opportunities downfield and he obviously had some great targets to throw to it's Stephon Diggs and Adam Thielen. You know, that was when sort of Thielen was coming into his own. People were understanding who Stephon Diggs was as a route runner. So he had a – it was sort of like the perfect situation, the perfect storm. You know, people thought, oh, Case Keenum, they're going to run the ball so they can load up off a play action. I got some numbers on that in a second. But yeah, I mean, that was an outlier. His career is usually going to look like what we saw last year. And one of the things on him last year was they thought he got too conservative at times, took too many checkdowns at times, cool. really sort of got away schematically from what worked for him the year prior. So it'll be interesting. We know Jay Gruden is aggressive. We saw him last year when it was the Colt McCoy show. They yeah. remained aggressive. And so I'm very curious to see if... This offense with Case Keenum under Jay Gruden is going to look similar to what we saw in 2017 under Pat Schumer.
0: Yeah, and I think the struggle here for me, and this is something that me and Solak touched on for Eye on the Enemy, our preview of the Washington season, I just don't see this offense having the quarterback. Or the weapons to threaten defenses down the field. And as such, they're going to have to grind out drives and ultimately win low scoring games. Now, we said this was the case regardless of the quarterback this year, if, no matter who they choose to play. But with Keenan specifically, I agree with what you said before about him being more conservative last year. I mean, you're also looking at a guy that is only moderately accurate beyond 20 yards, has consistently ranked in the bottom half of the league for average average intended air yards. He'll pass up on some vertical shots, but that's not to say that he's totally incapable of hurting you on shot plays. And as always, there's a gray area there. But I also saw a player that was less capable of making plays outside of structure than he did in 2017. So Jay Gruden is going to build in those vertical shots as he normally does. But I really see this as an offense that Jim Schwartz, the defensive coordinator for the Eagles, will just say, hey, you want the five-yard curl? You want the three-yard drag? You want the check down to the running back? I'm going to I'm gonna bait you into those. Go for it. We're going to rally up and tackle. And that's where Keenum struggles with consistency come into play because with me, he's going to have a hard time, especially if the running game can't create some advantageous situations. He's going to have a hard time putting together these 12- and 13-play drives that end up in the end zone.
1: Part of the thing to consider here is the weapons, like you were just sort of talking about. like Who's he going to be thrown to? It's not going to be like Stephon Diggs and Adam Thielen. You're talking about Terry McLaurin. Kelvin Harmon, Stephen Sims, that's three rookies, one of them undrafted, one of them a sixth-rounder. Talking about Trey Quinn and Robert Davis, again, a seventh-rounder and a sixth-rounder, and then Paul Richardson. Like Those are his wideouts right now.
0: Even Jordan Reed, like they're confident that he's going to play week
1: one. Always banged up. Vernon Davis, who's I think older than me, so <laughs> it, it's a tough situation. Now, they might have the ability to sort of piece together a run game you know you've got Adrian Peterson who showed flashes at times the past couple of years Darius guys should be back they're talking about getting him something in the neighborhood of I think 200 touches over the course of the season maybe even more are we confident that Darius guys coming back from the knee injury like, it's a huge series of question marks. And the other thing to consider, and obviously it's probably not going to happen week one, is how warm is the seed under Jay Gruden? How quickly is he going to have to sort of say, look, i got to get Dwayne Haskins in there to save my job? Yeah. Like, this Washington situation, it's a mess for Washington fans, as for Eagles fans and most of the gentle listeners, I'd imagine. Kind of enjoying seeing this one play out. So if Keenum
0: does have success from a conceptual level, if he has success, what does that look like? What, what are... Th- what are they running? What are the concepts? What matches with his skill set? What's the philosophy that, that matches with how he succeeded before? What, do, what does that look like for Washington on Sunday if they have a good offensive performance?
1: You're seeing a lot of success off of play action. You're seeing route concepts like Mills, like Yankee coming off of play action. That's when he's sort of been at his best back to 2017. Even last year, some of the plays when he was successful, you know, I was re-watching some case keetum. That's how I spent my labor day, friends, watching same. case keetum just yeah. same, right? Yeah. Um we we love our jobs. But yeah. <laughs> that's what it's gonna look like. And look, we've got numbers to back this up. You look at one of my favorite days of each offseason is play-action day over at Football Outsiders. And the 2017 play-action stats that they put together, Minnesota ranked first overall in play-action usage. They ran it on 30% of their passing plays, okay? Mm. Their defense-adjusted value over average took a boost on play-action plays versus non-play-action plays. It, it jumped by 44.2% or something like that. It was seventh the mm. best in the league. So they ran it a ton, and they were better thrown off of play-action than when they weren't. And this is something you can also sort of look at with Gruden. Now, even though the Redskins that season, 2017, which was obviously Cousins' last year in town, they only ran it 21% of the time, they had the fourth best boost in play action versus non-play action plays. There was like a jump of 48.7% of DVOA on when they went play action versus non-play action. So even though they couldn't run the ball because they struggled running the ball that year. Play action pass was a cheat code for that Washington Kirk Cousins-led offense. So I think that's what you're going to see. And again, we saw it last year. You look at the 2018 numbers. And again, Denver, they used play action middle of the pack. But you saw a huge boost, plus 28.4% on play action versus non-play action plays, which is, I think, ninth best in the league. So if they're going to be successful with Case Keenum, they're going to have to do it off of play action. Because when you can get those opportunities to, like I said, on Yankee, on Mills, you scheme that deep over, that post route against a defense that's sort of a couple of steps off where they're supposed to be, that's when he's going to be successful. Because like you said, Mike, he struggles with placement, getting them some bigger targets, some bigger windows to throw into, guys that are out of place, that's going to be huge for them. That's how this offense could be successful in the passing game
0: in every accuracy metric that the pff qb annual had him at like everything was below average except you know hitting a wide open target in stride so you right. make a good point there and with play action i mean the eagles the health status for nigel bradham who may be rusty when he comes back like he was when he came back last year that's up in the air camu hill his status so the eagles might be playing some linebackers that aren't going to be their entrenched starters throughout the year and they could absolutely take advantage of that with play action so i i agree with you that's where it it's going to have to happen for Washington. And look, the run game doesn't need to be successful for play action to work. That's nope. a fallacy. So they they can they can kind of do that. And look, I'm looking at the the lines on a betting website here. No free ads, but it's looking like the Eagles are the heaviest favorites of Week One NFL action, which is not foreboding uh, at all. At, at ten no, not points. At all. I'll get a prediction from you here. At at 10 points, the favorite, are you taking the Eagles to cover?
1: Yeah, I I think so. And and we saw this. Look, we saw last night. Eric Flowers at left guard, Donald Penn, (laughs) who they signed just the end of July at left tackle. Okay? So you've got that to go with. And while, yes, there are moments when Keenan can sort of create and scramble drills, look, His completion rate under pressure last year was awful. It wasn't great. Fletcher Cox, he's expected to go. So you have a lack of weapons. You have a quarterback that struggles against pressure. And you have Eric Flowers at left guard and Donald Penn at left tackle. Uh This could be a situation where you're seeing some – Three-outs, some turnovers, a defensive score, perhaps, a strip sack, perhaps. I'd expect the Eagles defense to have a very good day. So I think this is gonna be a nice day for Philadelphia. So I'm looking at the schedules
0: for the for the Eagles at the rest of the year. And and I'm I think my question would be to you at this point. It's week 15. We're doing the QB Sco show. Are we talking about Case Keenum or are we talking about Dwayne Haskins?
1: I think we're talking about Dwayne Haskins. Yeah. But there's a chance, just a small one, and we <laughs> obviously don't root for injuries or anything like that. But look, right, right, we right. just outlined the struggles that are going to be around whoever is taking the snaps for this Washington offense. It could be the Colt McCoy show by then because mm. this is going to be an offense that I think, again, predictions go wrong all the time. But it looks like on paper this offense is going to struggle. Maybe Haskins struggles as well. They decide either he's banned up or they're like, look, we don't want to like, you know, Shane Falco, this kid. Let's sit him down for a bit. We'll let Colt McCoy go out there and take some lumps while we sort of get ready for, I guess, what would be the Chip Kelly era in Washington. I don't know. But (laughs) we could be talking about some – I think we'll be – let's put it this way. We'll be talking about a different quarterback other than Case Keenum come the Week 15 show.
0: That's fair. Okay. I, I can get with that. Also, a, a last update here on the Cowboys as we record through this. Ian Are we Rapoport, breaking news? Yeah. Well, not not really. Ezekiel uh, Elliott's flying back from, from Cabo. He's flying back into the Dallas area in case his extension gets done, sources say. That's according to Ian Rappaport. Rappaport also said the deal is not done. Some obstacles remain, of course, uh, but he will be in town if it gets finalized. So, Mike. Yeah,
1: I think next year you're gonna petition those that are uh, the powers that be at SB Nation to go on the Elliott, you know, training camp regimen. Just be like, can I spend my <laughs> training camp summer in Cabo and then just fly back for week one? A summer with Zeke, I love it. A summer I love with the Zeke, idea. there you
0: go. <laughs> so i the I'll budget for it, right? Yeah, let's make it yeah. happen, SB Nation. Yeah. You cowards. Send yeah, yeah sponsored by you
1: know Dos Equis and Corona.
0: Yeah, We can make this happen. So that's going to do it for the QB Sco Show, episode 31. Uh, We thank you for joining us. Of course, like I said before, if you didn't hear it, but like the whole reason this show was created was to break down the enemy quarterback that the Eagles will be facing throughout the season. So we're going to be doing that every single week to get you as prepped as possible for the upcoming games so we're sorry if this week was case keenum we're gonna have some more exciting quarterbacks in the future so we thank you for joining us and we'll catch you next time